take a network break. Grab yourself a virtual donut and join us for our weekly review of tech news. We're sponsored in part today by Itential. Itential is intelligent automation for multi-domain and multi-vendor networks. You can find out more on the Packet Pushers Heavy Networking episode 503 and at itential.com slash packetpushers. And stay tuned after the news for a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Viavi Solutions. We talk about using enriched flow data to improve network performance monitoring and threat management. All right, we've got a little bit of news and some financial results, but we also wanted to cover some FUs, some follow-ups, which we haven't done in a bit. So uh, if you hear something... <laughs> That's actually code for it's a quiet week ahead <laughs> right. of Cisco Live next week. <laughs> yes, all quiet on the Western Front at the moment. And, uh, yes, and we sort of made a commitment to, our, to you, the audience, to say, instead of saying something just to fill in the space, we would say nothing. And then we said, well, we've got a whole bunch of FU. So FU is the follow-up that you sent to us. If you go to packetpushers.net slash FU, you can send us your FU. There's a form there or it gives you the email, whatever. And uh, people send in there. You don't have to provide us with a name. A name's helpful, though, because it makes uh, sometimes when people write in anonymously uh, and make various accusations and statements, it's a lot harder to accept it when it's just like nobody we could write back to and ask for clarification or whatever. So uh, do send us your FU. And uh, if you can, just give us a first name or something like that. And uh, and if there's any problems, we're here to fix them. And if there's positive stuff to handle, well, it comes on to the Yeah, FU. and as you'll hear, the FU is a mix of uh, comment, clarification, and uh, speculation. So let's dive in. Uh, first one, in a recent episode of Network Break, we talked about Juniper Mist and its Wi-Fi location tracking feature. And I made the comment that it felt like location tracking was kind of in uh, need of a compelling use case. And that use case may be tied to COVID-19. Uh, another listener wrote in to say, <laughs> quote, as for the Juniper Mist location tracking, one job I had was looking at Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi location tracking for something as simple as seeing free work spots in a flex office. Uh, and he also mentioned that his university has something like that. Uh, so yeah, there's another option for location tracking. And that weirdly is big business. A lot of companies want to know if all the desks are actually being utilized. There was uh, one company I worked with, which was a technology company, would regularly do work surveys because something like 60% of their staff were always out of the office. And that's when they realized, you know, because the staff would come back to the office and have a desk while they waited to go out on assignment and some of them would go out on casual, some of them would, you know, so on and so forth. When they realised that, you know, their offices were fundamentally empty, they actually went to a uh, empty desk policy or a rotating desk policy. And uh, this could be a use case for that where you actually see what is the density of people in the office and what, is, what does that mean? Because often the cost of buildings is one of the most expensive costs that companies have. And if you could shrink your office by 50%, you could actually cut a lot of money out of the bottom line. Yes, and I also just want to clarify my own comment. I meant enterprises not necessarily having a use case for location tracking. Obviously, it's useful in things like uh, device tracking in a hospital or in a retail environment, mm. but for the enterprise, it seemed like, eh. But yeah, and I think <laughs> business corporate real estate offices are going to be a real issue going forward as people become more accustomed to working from home and realize the benefits that they get out of it, uh, and organizations may decide they want to save on the cost of not having as much property to, to pay for mm. anymore. So, yeah. I'm not sure tracking's useful for that, though. Like, once you've got a new office, you need Wi-Fi. You know, you'll have less desktops and more laptops and that sort of stuff. But it'll be interesting to see how the world turns on that. But in this case, he's pointing out some extra use cases for location tracking that aren't just like who's at work, how many hours did they spend there, and so on and so forth. All right, moving on. Uh, recently on the uh, Heavy Networking Show, you guys did a show on SNMP, and a listener wrote in to talk about <laughs> their experiences with SNMP. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the SNMP show, uh, lots of solid feedback from that. Michael Lucas, who wrote a book uh, on SNMP, came onto the show. We sort of 
it was sort of a, the show was a bit erratic. We sort of wandered all around the place. But one of the things was that I uh, indicated that, that one of the biggest challenges in SNP is finding the MIBs. And uh, Mark wrote in to say that some vendors are actually now embedding the MIBs in the devices. So you can actually go to the MIB and you can see them. Uh, the zip file is actually built into the web server. You click it and the web is <laughs> and the MIB file is available to download and you can start to work with it and find what you want. But he was sort of saying, if you're going to be talking to vendors about MIB files, tell them to put them in the web interface so you can press click and download the MIBs that are related to the image that's mm -hmm. loaded on the system, yeah. which is kind of a good yeah, tip. Yeah, we'll have a link in the show notes if you want to go listen to that heavy networking show on SNMP. Uh, moving on, we had covered uh, Dell releasing its own version of the Sonic Network OS, uh, its own instantiation of that open source uh, network OS. And Dan wrote in to say, as a Dell Cumulus customer, I can't help but think the Dell Sonic announcement is at least partly a defensive move regarding the recent Cumulus acquisition. Cumulus got picked up by Mellanox slash NVIDIA. Yeah, I actually don't think this was the case. Uh, we've been just finished recording a podcast with Dell on the Sonic platform. We've got more information on how that's going to look like. And in, during that discussion, we talked about the fact that this program started yes. three to five years ago. And it's just as likely that Dell corporate might have bought Cumulus Networks or had discussions mm -hmm. with Cumulus Networks mm -hmm. at the same time, right? So um, you can't draw think a lot of these things take years to come to fruition and it, but it is also true that these acquisitions are often done for multiple reasons it's never just one thing you need multiple positives for something to go ahead and usually you want as we'll talk about in a minute with Cisco's acquisition of thousand eyes it's very integrated it it benefits many business units inside of Cisco sometimes you can't even see them all so I suspect that I don't believe that to be the case although it's certainly going to be good for Dell coming out with Sonic at the same time as Mellanox um, you know, gets acquired by NVIDIA and then Cumulus joins Mellanox in the same organisation. And just to give you an example of that, I know that when HPE bought Plexi to add to their data centre portfolio as part of their HCI networking, most of the actual networking team inside of HPE did not know. And several internal projects around networking were terminated the day after that was found out that that yeah. was what was happening. So sometimes big companies are just dumb, not because they're dumb, but just because they're big and these things. Yeah, I think just the timing was more so. coincidence than anything else for a couple of reasons. One, as you mentioned, building your own mm. distro is going to take some time and planning. That's a years-long effort. Uh, two, uh, Mellanox and Cumulus have been in talks, and then NVIDIA came along to acquire Mellanox, so that held things up. And then the NVIDIA-Mellanox acquisition also got held up mm. by governments looking to approve it. So that I think we probably would have heard about this acquisition earlier without that kind of um, th those roadblocks being put in place. Yeah. Coincidental time. Or you, you never know, one might have accelerated the other or, you know, Dell might have accelerated Sonic seeing a transition coming. These people are often not hear, hear about what's yes. happening because they're all working in the same backyard. Right, and, and at the very least, Dell can say, you know, they're sort of protected in the network OS space if Mellanox or NVIDIA decides to stop mm. sharing Cumulus around, which would be, I think, silly, but you never know what's going to happen down the line. Mm -hmm. Uh, back to a heavy networking. FU, a listener, offered some feedback on an episode on heavy networking where, Greg, you had a debate about the LISP protocol. Yeah, and this person was saying that uh, he didn't want to hear me saying how irrelevant LISP was because Greg knows everything. <laughs> debate, if you will, but I tuned in to learn it from a guest and I got the host telling the guest how the world works. That's exactly the premise of the show would be my response. Carl actually came to me and said, I don't understand the value of Lisp. I can't see why it's not more awesome and everybody's not using it. And we were having a chat in our Slack channel and then we had a call and we talked about it and I realised it would make a good show. And what I was trying to highlight 
was that Lisp has a number of features, but it also has a number of negatives. One of those, and I have actually spent quite a lot of hours actually researching Lisp. So when I don't know a topic, I'll tend to shut my mouth and let the guest talk about it. But if it's a topic on which I've done quite a bit of research and done a lot of things, so, for example, if you go into the Back at Pushers back catalogue, you'll see we've done, I think it's four shows on Lisp over a period of time from 2013 to 2016, back in the days when Lisp was going to be a data centre technology. It then went on to become a WAN technology before it finally found a home in Cisco's software-defined mm-hmm. campus strategy, mm-hmm. SD access strategy. And uh, so I, I don't regard myself as an expert, but if you want to, we do have shows in the back catalogue from Victor Marino and Dino Farinacci, and you should listen to those. But even better would be to go onto Cisco Live. They've got some fantastic presentations about Lisp and how it works. If you want training, that's where you should go. The premise of this show, and as we stated in the intro, was that we were taking two sides of a debate. Carl was in the full Lisp camp, and I was taking the opposing view, and the reason was that we wanted to promote the discussion. It wasn't actually meant to be an educational. So the point was that we did st- state that we weren't experts, but we just wanted to make sense of why this exists, not the other thing. So, And generally, we do try to run shows in different formats. We aren't an educational podcast. If you want education, go talk to your vendors or sign up for O'Reilly or a plural site or you know one of the training course companies. If you want to have a discussion around some of the thinking about why, and we don't pretend to know all the answers here. Um, so that's the purpose of the discussion was to try and uncover the answers and think about things that aren't normally covered in a training course or in the sales cycle, and that was the purpose of that show. If you missed the intro, sometimes people skip through the intro, kind of do the same thing with some of the podcasts I listen to. If you <laughs> Don't blame me, to be fair. Uh, but if you skip the intro, you might have missed this fact, and... Um, with Packet Pushers intros, you probably shouldn't miss them. Uh, we do keep them very short. We don't waffle <laughs> at the start. We don't have any music. And sometimes we'll explain the purpose of a show up front. So uh, hopefully you didn't miss the introduction and you might have missed the fact that I laid out the case that we were taking two sides of a debate and we're going to argue for and against uh, between the two people. So hopefully that uh, Just a tiny bit of self-promotion if you're interested in LISP uh, in relation to SD Access, which is the Cisco Campus Automation Solution. Uh, on our Ignition site, ignition.packetpushers.net, we've got a new course on SD Access by Phil Gervasi, and one of the things Phil covers is sort of the business proposition behind LISP and why Cisco went that route. All right, uh, another FU listener wrote in with some corrections regarding statements, Greg, you had made about ASIC performance in a recent network break. He was right. (laughs) (laughs) He said, uh, Greg commented that FPGA L1 latencies are single-digit nanos, which is mostly correct, but they also have 40 to 60 nanosecond FPGA-driven multiplexes. That's correct. There's different sort of forwarding nodes when you're using these L1 network switches. And he's pointing out that when you go into multiplex mode, you get 40 to 60 nanosecond. I was talking very quickly, and I didn't actually take time to do the pre-research because it's very hard to, and the, de- the breadth of topics that we cover on this show. Uh, and he also pulls me up on the fact that I said that Mellanox could forward at 300 to 60 nanoseconds, which is off by an order of magnitude. He is correct. Uh, the port-to-port latencies of the Mellanox switches is something in the order of 300 to 600 nanoseconds, depending on the model. Uh, the current generation of SN2000 switches, as Greg notes in the email, uh, is 300 nanoseconds. So, yeah, same thing. And then, of course, the Broadcom ASICs are way worse than that. Tip, most of them are up around the 600 to 800 nanosecond range. So, yes, I was wrong. I apologise. It's uh, my only defence is it's very hard to keep some of these numbers in your head when you're juggling just such a wide range of topics like financial news and then all of a sudden that's... So I will try harder to 
I get that in my head before I put words in sure, my head. Sure, but that's also why we have a few. Uh, we're happy to take corrections when warranted. All right, uh, one more before we hit the news. In last week's episode, we covered Intel's purchase of Rivet Networks. They make the killer line of products for the gaming market that promises to optimize wireless performance through bandwidth limiting and SD-WAN-like techniques. And a listener essentially wrote in to say that he's found that kind of limiting to essentially be useful, uh, especially when you're trying to share rural broadband among multiple people. Um, so, yeah, he was just sort of uh, following on with... <laughs> There is a uh, there yeah. is a market for killer networks <laughs> products. I, I seem to remember, and I didn't, haven't had chance to um, go back and re-listen to last week's show. But I think I actually said at the time that I'm pretty dubious that these features have mm. real value. But that doesn't mean that the thing I didn't say is that doesn't mean they're not features that make money for companies. Um, <laughs> as we talk, <laughs> so uh, and and I think there's a, another part about. Uh, this person's feedback was that the killer line of products are pretty much trash. They don't really solve any problems. And I think that's what I was trying to get at in the session was uh, this killer line of products, you know, with their Ethernet ASICs and their Wi-Fi has the capability or in theory to do something useful. But I'm questioning whether it's actually worthwhile because of the realities of shared networks. So if you're in a house and you've got a high-speed NIC that accelerates the packets of the gaming packets off your box... That doesn't actually solve the problem that your Wi-Fi is the bottleneck or your internet mm. connection is the bottleneck or the internet is the bottleneck. It's the old cost problem can't be solved in a public net, public and shared environment. Um, uh, you know, but then again, you can sell people to sell stuff to gaming people like gaming chairs and gaming mice oh, yeah. and you know, yep, yeah, market and for ridiculous prices and they they look like a you know a teenage boy's wet dream, but. <laughs> I'm not convinced that they're any more ergonomic or any faster or better than any other normal technology. So well, if you have a follow-up for us, go over to packetpushers.net slash FU. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's get to the big news for the week. Cisco Systems is acquiring thousand eyes. The amount was not officially disclosed, but Bloomberg reports an acquisition price of nearly $1 billion. Ah, the $1 billion technology unicorn, <laughs> right. the dream, the dream, the Silicon Valley dream is realized. I mean, not bad considering Thousand Eyes started off with $150,000 um, grant, I think, from the NSF, the National Science Foundation. So pretty yes. good return. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's a new, yeah, well, it's a tremendous story. And they got the grant from the government because they didn't want to go for funding, for VC funding. Not initially, yes. In other words, they wanted to maintain control of the company and they didn't want to take the time and or dilute their effort. And they weren't sure where the product was going to go. So I put a link to an email where Mohit Lad, uh, sorry, not an email, to a blog post where Mohit Lad uh, talks about the early days um, of Thousand Eyes back in 2015. He wrote these two blog posts. They're worth reading because he fundamentally got started through a government, a U.S. government grant, and he's now gone on to create a billion-dollar company to which Cisco's acquired. I do think this is a brilliant move by Cisco. They're absolutely buying a product that is going to make the money and I think going to make Cisco customers happy. There's um, an immediate short-term gain here. Cisco gets subscription revenue that it can bring onto its books, um, which is going to be good for Cisco's promises to shareholders to yes. go with subscription revenue. Thousand Eyes itself is all cloud-based, although they did start out building data centers. I believe today most of their infrastructure is based in the cloud. Again, with Cisco's cloud-first strategy, they're based in San Francisco, and much of their developer talent is, I believe, based out of India, which is consistent where the majority of Cisco's product developers and software developers are actually based. So it should fit in, snap into Cisco pretty well. Sometimes you look at these acquisitions and you realise they're going to be setting up a new office in a new town somewhere that Cisco hasn't historically been. 
this seems to have a good mapping. I think so. Uh, for one, it doesn't necessarily conflict with uh, a product line that Cisco already has in-house or acquired elsewhere. They say it's going to dovetail with uh, the AppDynamics product, which Cisco acquired a few years back. AppDynamics focuses more on uh, application performance on the application device itself, whereas Thousand Eyes is focusing on internet and WAN performance. And if you've heard any network break, you've probably mm. heard us advertise Thousand Eyes because they're a sponsor. So I just wanted to make sure that was also <laughs> clear that they're yeah. a sponsor. Thousand Eyes is going to be tucked into Cisco networking services business unit and both Thousand Eyes co-founders are going to stay on at least for the time being. Yeah, it's very interesting to think about what Thousand Eyes is going to do because one of the things that they can do is they have an agent-based service as well and they've been struggling to get the router makers to put their agents inside the router. So at one stage they were hoping to get their agent as a container which would run on routers. So the logical extension here is that Thousand Eyes will be able to get their agent into iOS and that instantly starts to generate revenue. The AppDynamics part is really interesting because AppDynamics is a performance monitoring, an application performance monitoring solution, very popular with cloud developers to be able to troubleshoot where the performance is. And obviously with the Thousand Eyes monitoring the internet and the public backbone, as well as the private backbone as well, but that's less relevant, I think, for APM, they can start to say, hang on, it's not the problem's not in your app, the problem's in the internet in this part of the world and feed that directly into the, the app dynamics. So I think there's a lot of short-term revenue. Snap it into the enterprise BU. The EBU is shrinking substantially. We've seen the enterprise business unit, that's the ACI routing WAN, SD-WAN has been shrinking at about 5% per quarter for the last eight to 10 quarters, I think. And so this would be a good chance for Cisco to get some more revenue coming in and bolster those numbers there. Immediately adds on to the existing networking customer base. Cisco obviously strong in networking. So, you know, so the salespeople will be out there saying, you should buy this uh, buy this extra fries. Here's your sweet potato fries with your, you know. That's right. <laughs> with your public WAN, with your SD-WAN. Yeah, with your router, with your SD-WAN, whatever. Yeah, we can also do monitoring of the internet for you. Yep. And then the long-term revenue then comes from app when AppDynamics uh, can integrate Thousand Eyes Although I suspect Thousand Eyes and AppDynamics have been having talks for a couple of years because they've, you know, there's been a need for that, and that's where the long-term revenue plays. So it actually plugs into lots of different areas. There, I think, um, can also feed into threat detection, threat management stuff. So it could feed into some of the some of security's umbrella services. It could provide a threat feed in there about if there's changes to the internet or BGP route hijacks. Will they continue to have, you know, the open DNS part of the team that was monitoring a lot of that? Will they start to switch that to Thousand Eyes and go for some cost savings? There's a possibility there. So, and I, I was just I was looking at the date of the announcement. So today, yesterday, which is the announcement day, is the same day that VMware was releasing their financial results. And I'm I was wondering if Cisco's you know executives at these big companies get like to jab each other competitors because you know that's winning is when you can stick it in their eyes. I was wondering if that was a problem. But then I was thinking this morning um, there was an announcement on Bloomberg that somebody had got a whiff of it. And I wonder if Cisco decided to just go out with the announcement. So you could go either way here. Did Bloomberg get a scoop and then they went loud on it once they realised that it was out or did they actually do it on VMware's uh, over VMware's final result, financial results and try and get Honestly, a Honestly, I think with Cisco Live coming up next week, we're recording this on the Friday before Cisco Live, that's the kind of thing that maybe you would want to celebrate, uh, you know, for the first time during your Cisco Live mm. keynote speech. So, yeah, maybe uh, at the Bloomberg mm. scoop sort of forced their hand a little bit. That's That would be my perspective. Uh, I also want to say, I think, frankly, you know, talking about sticking it in your competitor's eyes, for Cisco in this economy, and we'll talk about some financial results from uh, some of their competitors down the line, to lay out a 
billion dollars on an acquisition is also kind of a bold move. I mean, they've got the cash in reserve, but when everybody is sort of hoarding cash and being more conservative to step up and say, bam, we're, we're still rolling with these acquisitions is kind of a power play. I, I, I'm not so sure. I think Cisco's been waiting to spend its money. It's got $30 billion in cash, and although it's been buying back shares, uh, doing share repurchases to repatriate that cash to customers, it hasn't been rushing into that. And I think it's been casing the market. I actually thought that they would be buying a storage company first. There's plenty of IP storage, you know, or distributed storage companies that could be on the table or somebody like a rubric or, or a cohesity. You know, we've seen various rumors around those sorts of areas. And that would be the natural one to round out the UCS portfolio is to start getting into the backup and recovery. That's the nest. That's the adjacent market. But this one's a reasonably small purchase at a billion dollars. So those companies that I was, you know, they're three to $5 billion uh, purchase prices. And the flip side of the COVID-19 is that most of the technology vendors have grown. So we'll talk a little bit about Dell and VMware's results and HPE's results. But they're basically, most of the IT companies are actually seeing revenue growth and sales growth, albeit at lower profit margins because of the costs. There's some cost problems. Um, the demand for products seems to be very high overall and suggesting that most companies are turning on the spending for IT as they transition to remote working and digital to replace what used to be physical. That would be a, a reasonable assumption. So Cisco might be taking this opportunity to double down and and get this un, get under their belt so they're ready and poised for the next next generation. Yeah, like I said, I I guess I still feel like it is a power move, a power play to say, you know, we're not we're not backing off mm. our acquisition strategy and we're extending our portfolio even in the face mm. of some severe economic headwinds. I also wonder if other vendors yeah. are going to follow suit, uh, maybe picking up uh, players now like Kentic, Appnetta, ExtraHop. Uh, there may be a little bit more shine on those organizations right now. I think so. I think so. Well, Kentic got twenty-seven million this week in uh, supplementary funding, uh, which is good for them. Um, so there is money flowing into those businesses. Lots of um, quality startups have been getting extra funding to carry them through the next two years, where they've been able to put out a good case. And there's a lot of hot money, basically looking for a home. So not unrealistic to say that. Right. There's and plenty in this of time of more folks working from home, um, more folks, more organizations moving to cloud services, being able to get that cloud visibility, WAN mm. visibility, it's sort of an easier sale, I think, if, mm. uh, when you're making investments. Oh, this is a perfect oh, fit yeah. for Cisco, really. Um, the surprising part here is I would make the claim that Cisco wouldn't be able to develop this product in-house. If they could have, they would have. Um, there are certain concerns here. They've got a whole bunch of internal products here now that massively overlap. They've got Tetration, DNS Center, StealthWatch, StealthWatch Cloud, Meraki Portal, they've got Prime, they've got AppDynamics, Crosswork, Network Insights, which is the telco version of Crosswork, right? There's just so many tools inside of Cisco that overlap that there's going to have to be some rational... I think there should be some rationalization. Whether there will be or not, I don't know. But uh, that's the challenge at Cisco is keeping all the products into a coherent order because and the customers get very confused because if you've got too many of the same thing customers tend to go into a sort of a <laughs> a holding pattern and go like this isn't working i don't know what to buy i'll stop it's too hard <laughs> yeah i guess that could be an issue i feel like tetration is hard to say that's a thousand eyes competitor because it's an entirely different focus and an entirely different spend that's more your capital straight up <laughs> expense 
Yeah, but, you know, titration will tell you what's happening inside your data center, but so can Thousand Eyes. Like, they, they are different things. One's very detailed and one's, you know, but Thousand Eyes can tell you what's happening inside of your data center too, effectively, because it's using, if you're using the agents. Right, if you throw some agents on servers, yeah, I guess I can see that. But that's not really, it's prime use case. But yes, Cisco always does have a big portfolio of products, and so that, that kind of issue of what do I buy where becomes a problem. That said, though, otherwise it seems like a, a really great acquisition and a nice fit for both organizations. Yes, I think so. I'm very excited for a Thousand Eyes, and obviously I think Cisco customers will be pleased. You know, people who like buying uh, products from Cisco, who are very loyal to the Cisco brand, will be pleased about the product and probably, you know, dive in in droves, I imagine. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Itential. Itential is a network automation platform. You can think of Itential as a middleman between you and network infrastructure. They've got a network API. It federates functionality and data from controllers, orchestrators, and network management tools. In other words, you have you talk to Itential via their network API, and then Itential talks to everything else for you. It's easy to use, it scales, it's multi-domain, and it's vendor agnostic. Imagine simplifying your network operations. That means reducing the amount of glue code you have to maintain, ignoring a million different APIs, sitting in front of different networking gear, exposing consistent network perimeters to developers, writing code for the operations team. You can get exactly that on the Attential Automation Platform, supporting the entire life cycle of your network automation process. For more detailed information about Attential, you can listen to Heavy Networking episode 503, where we talk to CTO Chris Wade about their automation platform. You can also visit itential.com slash packet pushers. So that's Heavy Networking 503 and itential.com slash packet pushers. And thanks, Attential, for being a sponsor. All right, back to the news. We mentioned a lot of financial results. We'll kick it off with VMware. They reported Q1 2021 results. Revenue for the quarter was $2.7 billion, up 12% year-over-year, with net income of $386 million, which is just a hair over last year's revenue for this quarter. Yeah, so we're getting deeper and deeper into COVID now, so we're seeing the impacts of COVID on the financial results, and VMware still managed to post 12% gains. I noticed in the analysts' transcript where you read up what the CEO says to the analysts, they're talking about the success of their thin client. So that is something not surprising. I think a lot of companies have actually invested in thin client mm -hmm. to support remote access. We saw a lot of people go to Azure, a lot of people firing up their um, RDP sort of clients that Azure Stack has, but also VMware's got thin clients. I imagine Citrix has done pretty well in its thin client business, as people find. Uh, search for a fast way to get thin clients up and running. So not surprising that VMware's done pretty well. And in face of the cloud transition, you know, the COVID-19 impacts, VMware doesn't have any supply chain problems. It's just software. Right. <laughs> that, that does help. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's right. Uh, just a, some, a couple notes on this. Subscription and SaaS revenue was $572 million, up 39%, though software licensing still drives the majority of its revenue. Uh, the company did not offer guidance on its second quarter, which is going to be a familiar theme throughout the rest of this conversation. Yeah, something that we've seen all the technology vendors, they don't feel they can predict the next two, three quarters, so they're just pulling any predictions and the analysts have to make up their own minds. Uh, we'll see what happens from there. Uh, moving on, Dell Technologies reported their Q1 2021 financial results. They posted revenues of $21.9 billion, essentially flat year-over-year, year, and net income was $182 million, down 45% compared to this time last year. Uh, the thing that surprised me is just how little profit. So net income of 182 million on 21.9 billion is pretty right. astonishing. And VMware has 386 <laughs> million on 2.7 billion. So wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, I'm not an accountant. So if you're doing investing, you'd probably want to go and talk to somebody who's got knows far more about these things than I do. I think the interesting part here is that they're suspending their share repurchases. So Dell had announced a billion dollar share repurchase program. 
uh, in at the end of February and then now suspending that after only spending a quarter of the billion dollars so far. The assumption there would be is that they're building up cash in case the business turns in strange ways or they need the cash to make acquisitions or to uh, prime the supply chain, like make advance orders and pay for advanced equipment as as we've seen elsewhere. So, and I think the other thing that they're doing, like other technology vendors, is they're actually extending credit terms to the reseller community. So Michael Dell was actually saying, or the CFO of Dell was actually saying, the program includes 0% interest rates and up to 180-day payment deferral, and we're also making $9 billion in financing available this year, and we add a one-year term to our technologies on-demand offerings, which can be used. So basically what they're doing is extending uh, interest rate uh, 0% interest rates to resellers and customers. Uh, they can delay payment for up to 180 days. So customers need something immediately. They can get the products, but the payments come later when the revenues come back in. And they're also offering additional financing term. Uh, but there was another part there where they talked about um, they're seeing unpre unprecedented demand dynamics over the course of the quarter. And we're facing an uncertain environment as we look ahead and made these areas of prudent in-quarters decisions to manage cost and liquidity. But I think what they're saying there is they're actually pre-ordering some stock to get stuff ordered, but we're not actually sure whether we need it. So we're trying to hoard cash at the same time as we kind of keep our supply chain primed. Because remember, all Dell, the majority of Dell's equipment comes from China. Yeah, although I will note that they, in their press release, they, they touted a, quote, resilient supply chain. So where other tech companies like Cisco and Arista mentioned supply chain issues in their mm. quarterly results, apparently Dell seems to not be having those kind of issues. I don't know why. Yeah, I suspect that um, Dell is so large that they've been diversifying their supply chain for a while. In if you're a smaller company, it makes less sense to have a diverse supply chain because that just costs money and time and tends to break. Whereas Dell has always been very, very focused, like on the supply chain and supply chain management. So I think it's a yeah, and I'm uh, hearing your analysis. I'm wondering if Dell is anticipating that in this quarter, with folks scrambling to get remote workers and set up, set up they and you know support those remote workers, they may have seen a spike in orders that will trail off as folks are now more accustomed to the, the quote unquote new normal we're going through, which could be bad mm. news for the next couple of quarters. Well, think about it this way: people are buying less desktops and many more laptops. Yep. So you know, if your supply chain is built for a certain you know, you would need to pre-order a lot of laptops to have them ready for three months' time sort of thing. So you've got to have that cost on the books, but there's no guarantee that you'll actually sell them. Whereas before, when steady-state business, you would be able to accurately predict how many products of this and that you'd need. Yeah. Well, so they're sort of saying to investors, we don't know, we're making some bets here. So <laughs> <laughs> yes. how many laptops do we need to make? We need to make lots because people are buying them. Yes, but how many lots? 200% lots, 400%, you know, we don't know. And if you haven't got them, you might not make the sale. So difficult. Yeah. Very difficult times. All right, moving on. HPE also released its financial results. That came last week, but we missed it, so we'll scoop it up here. For the second quarter of 2020, HPE posted revenues of $6 billion, down 16% year-over-year. Revenue across all of its product portfolios was down compared to last year. And, of course, the company cited the global economic lockdown as a significant challenge for their performance. Yeah, HPE seems to be going the other way, where Dell, VMware, and Cisco have all posted very strong financial results. HPE has been very much weaker and revenue shrinkage. Keep in mind that um, HPE is still very much into the legacy data center or the heritage data center business, selling servers and compute, but not desktops and laptops. That's the HP business. Mm -hmm. yeah, so it's going to be interesting to see how that works. 
um, and whether they can continue to sustain. They particularly called out in the financial results that their costs are now higher than their revenues, so they're going to be looking to cut heads. Um, so fair to say that HP is struggling a little bit, not badly. They're shrinking. They're shrinking in a controlled sort of a way, uh, but they don't seem to have been able to get the uptick that we've seen other companies get, like Dell, Cisco, and so and Juniper uh, have all done very well, and VMware have done very well, but HP isn't. So they are still struggling at this point. Yeah, they did announce a cost optimization plan that was going to affect the product portfolio, customer support, supply chain, and of course the workforce. Yeah, if you look at you know, where the losses were incurred, they published in their financial results the Q2 financial year 20 segment results, and basically every segment of the business was down substantially, yeah. including a 20% drop in the core area of compute. So compute is something like 50% of their total revenue, and they had a 20% shrinkage year over year in that uh, segment. So reasons to be concerned for, for you know, on their way to a 16% shrinkage year over year. Um, you know, let's see how... Uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. And as we mentioned with other tech companies, HPE is not offering guidance for the next quarter or for the full fiscal year. All right, let's wrap up with a kind of a funny and kind of a sad story. You've probably seen it, but officials in the UK are looking to stop the sale of a USB stick that claims to be able to protect people from the dangers of 5G, whatever those might be. It's being <laughs> sold as the 5G BioShield, and the maker says the device uses a, quote, holographic nanolayer catalyzer. <laughs> uh, which you and I would call a holographic sticker. <laughs> That's right. It's <laughs> the breakdown. <laughs> Somebody bought one and tore it down, and it's basically a holographic sticker on the outside of a USB stick, which costs about five bucks, which is a, a pretty good scam, right? If you can actually convince people to buy these and get away with it, well, I guess, you know, like... That's the thing, it's a $5 USB stick, but it's being sold for £339 in the UK, which is about, you know, around 400 bucks US. Yep, yep. Yep. Wow. So so (laughs) I think uh, if we ever get to a conference in uh, 2021, Drew, I think I'm going to get a bunch of these made up, and it's going to be the the, uh, packet pushers, sales shield. You're going to be able to plug it in, (laughs) and it'll insulate you from all the marketing around you as you walk around the conference. It'll keep you calm. And thanks to our wearable holographic nanolayer catalyzer, right, just place it near yourself as you walk around. You'll be protected from any marketing and sales information and the peace and the the sheer zen that you'll get, that's going to save you. That'll totally be worth 400 bucks, I think. Yes. And it'll also come with two free boxes of virtual donuts as well, of course. Well, there you go. That's a bargain. <laughs> Just to put the icing on that deal, huh? <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, keep an eye out for that. But in the meantime, that wraps up our news portion of the show. Stick around. We've got a Tech Bytes conversation with Viavi. We're going to be talking about and using rich flow data for performance monitoring and threat management. That's coming right up. You're listening to Tech Bytes from the Packet Pushers. Viavi Solutions is our sponsor today, and we're going to talk about using enriched flow data for network performance monitoring and threat management. Our guest is Warren Karen. He is sales engineer at Viavi. Warren, welcome to the podcast. And to get us started, what do you mean exactly by enriched flow? Is it, does it have vitamins and minerals, or how is it different from regular NetFlow? It actually does have some vitamins and minerals. That's how we enrich the flow these days. No, it's not your grandfather's flow. Flow has been with us forever in a day, and everyone's well aware of its abilities, and it's used all over the world because it's a truly great product. It's a truly great thing. But what if we want more out of it? What if we could tie together 
information from your firewalls or information from your load balancers or information from your VPN concentrators, then we get something that's a bit more enriched because it allows us to map out the network more accurately, understand what's happening from a threat perspective, as well as just generally give you um, what you need to perform your job every day. So really it's this traditional idea of a flow record, you know, what we used to know as S-Flow or NetFlow or IPFix, whatever it is that you're using underneath a flow. And what you're doing is taking those flow records and then adding extra data to it so that the flow becomes enhanced with other metadata. That's correct. That's exactly right. So what we do is we take your typical flow record, match it together with information that we get off of a firewall, for example. So if you roll out a new application and some user isn't able to access it because the firewall is blocking it, not like no one's ever seen that before, right? right. And mm. you can plug in his IP address or his username and you can, say, and you can see firewall extension codes, ACL blocking the user. So right. it's something that allows you to take information all over the network and view what's happening. And that's just the beginning. Right. Okay, so Flow is essentially telling me kind of the, 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 the state of the application transmission, but you're also saying I can get more context about what's happening with that Flow. That's correct, because yeah. it's not just from a router's perspective anymore, mm -hmm. because there's so much on the network that we, we need more than just router and switch information. So how am I getting it then? How am I getting it and what's doing the actual matching up of uh, a firewall log or a load balancing log with my flow record? Um, it is your, we deploy your typical flow collector, right? But what mm -hmm. we also do is we allow it to ingest syslog messages, any text message, right? So that could include an F5 load balancer. They have the ability to output um, something like a syslog record, or um, a firewall, or a VPN concentrator, we can take in that data and match it via the IP address to grab its MAC addresses off of, say, a CAM or an ARP table. We can grab the username off of Active Directory or LDAP. So this is how we are able to use Flow plus this enriched Flow to track down what's happening on the network. So how are we tying this back then to network performance? What additional visibility or context am I getting by having enriched flow in regard to performance? We were just uh, working this out with a, with a recent customer this past week where they have all these users, 90,000 of them, trying to dial in. And they all have issues and problems and you know kids screaming in the background or whatever it happens to be. And so they're saying, hey, the network's slow. Well. What happens traditionally is they can see the IP address coming in through a VPN, you know, any connect, right? Yeah. And then it hits the load balancer. Then they lose complete visibility. Like, well, it hits the load balancer. You know, we don't have an ability to, to map it without going into the F5 or the, or the ASA, da-da-da-da-da. What we can do is take the end cell coming off of the VPN concentrator, Mm -hmm. We can take the flow as well as syslog coming off of the load balancer or the ASA, match those together, and say you're going from, we see the user all the way out is his home IP address, 
all the way through to the server that they're talking to. And this is but what the thing, I think the interesting says. part here is the flow record, not only does it identify IP addresses and MAC addresses, which is actually contained in the flow, you're attaching uh, metadata yep. that the VPN has because you can start to say, well, I'm in the VPN concentrator. The RV observer can go and grab the username and, you know, what Active Directory and talk to the Active Directory server and find out more about what groups they're in. But that flow record can be done for two things here, I think, which is interesting. One is it can be used for network visibility and network analytics. So how well is the performance of the user going? But the other part exactly. here is that this flow record can be used for threat management because absolutely you've now got all the data that to make a standard um, threat management feed record and you can start to feed it into a threat management server and say, hang on, is this user actually legit? Is their traffic legit? And so now all of a sudden I've got a tool that the RV Observer stops being um, a network analytics tool or a performance management tool. It becomes something much more. Exactly. Because now what we can do is we can say things like, you know, if this is a bad actor, what have they touched on the network? How far have they gotten? So what we see, what our customers tell us that they're, they're, they get the most bang for the buck out of this is in reducing down dwell time. Dwell time is the nightmare of SecOps, right? right. Oh, gosh, our, our destroyer has been being controlled by the Chinese for two years. They've been able to <laughs> access everything on our destroyer, right? True U.S. Navy thing. They were like, ah, <laughs> this is bad because that's the dwell time that we're talking about, right? right. We've got somebody bad. How do we get them off? Yeah, Let's reduce yeah. down that time. Or because we also do so much with packet capture, like straight up packet capture, we can tell you what's been exfilled out of your out of your network. So these are all huge security problems. And you know, a lot of people focus on, you know, the tools that do just straight up detection or straight up screaming, right? Uh -huh. They just scream at you at the top of their lungs. Ah, problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the idea well, here is instead of just screaming, you're saying, here's a MAC address where we've identified a potential issue. Or an IP address or a username or an application. You've not only have you got the MAC address, you've got the IP address, you've got the user login, you've probably got a good sense of what application they're running and where they're actually, and, and from that data, you can start to extrapolate, oh, this person's at a remote branch, or where they're working yep. from home. Uh, if you've got enough connectivity data coming out of Active Directory and you're correlating it with the flow record, you've suddenly got this. Um, let me ask you a question. One of the big things that VRV Observer is also big of is packet capture. I'm guessing yeah. that you also integrate. So if I had to switch from like flows is kind of like a scanning, like it's a low resolution data form, you don't get all the data. But I'm guessing that if I click the right button and I had the right tools, I can go instantly from observing and threat management to forensic and seeing what's actually happening. Absolutely. It's all tied together. So that way you can grab packets and start to do your deep dive into, okay, so we see exactly bite by bite how they use DNS to exfil data. Mm. We mm. see bite by bite how they are using Twitter to get data off my network. Right. These are <laughs> these are the new crazy things that the that the hackers are doing these days and they're brilliant, right? Yeah. And because yep. you've got best in the world guys coming after you. Best in the world. They're gonna get through. 
So mm-hmm. what are you going to do about it? So am I able to pivot that quickly from uh, a flow record right down into packets, assuming I've got a packet capture infrastructure deployed? Assuming you've got the packet capture infrastructure, absolutely. It's actually just a click of the button. Go get me packets with the, either this MAC address, this IP address, this port number, et cetera. And you've also got the intelligence engine strapped on as well. So you can actually say, show me the thread. So just show me the TCP packets or all of the IP data related to this user effectively because you know their IP address and things like that. It'll actually follow the thread and do some of the application breakdown for you. Uh, Obviously, encryption changes some of that, but at least you've got some sort of forensic inspection that you can start to crack. And if you've got all of the things, I think this is really interesting in the sense that you're actually combining security and analytics in a single platform really changes the way I think about things. And of course, the Viavi Observer packet capture engines, they're rated to, I think from the back of my head, not just tens of gigabits per second, but way beyond. Well, so one single system, max packet right to disk from a single system is 60 gigabits per second is kind of the, the, the top speed. But obviously... You can use something like a packet broker to break that up and get multiple systems to go up as high as you want. So it can be run at scale, and it actually you can capture an awful lot of packets for a sustained period of time. This isn't just like turn it on for 15 minutes and I've blown the server out. This is at scale. So th- where's the trade-offs? We've got if there's if we've got this flow records being collected. So the trade-offs. So where's the weaknesses in this architecture? Obviously, we have to rely on the network appliances to generate flow records. That's a solved problem. Um, you yep. have to send the flow records into your service, but then you have to start to do the correlation and combining the data together, doing the enrichment. So uh, you're going to want a really powerful server to run it, mm. right? Mm. So that's that's going to be that's going to be some of the some of the technical trade offs, right? Because you're right, there's always trade offs. You know, you can't have you, you, you know you you go out, you spend eighty thousand dollars on a Corvette, mm. right? There are some trade-offs. You can fit only one passenger. You can't go 200 <laughs> miles an hour with your family. Right. <laughs> so probably not the car you bring to the hardware store. Much, yeah. As much fun as that would be at times. Um, <laughs> it's probably you know, fair to say that you push and put your family in a car <laughs> 200 miles an hour. Uh, this is not a, a soft or low code or low requirement solution. You to be able to that collect data correct. at high speeds at high fidelity. And to perform the necessary analytics, you do have to have some lead. There has to be some lead in here. Got to be, got to be a bit of firepower behind the behind the servers. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, honestly, your F fives. If you're if you if you're running your F fives maxed out, and then you ask them to export their what amounts to like a syslog, mm-hmm. that that does take a performance hit on your F fives. So. We come in and we help people make decisions about mm. how to do it and what's the most effective way to do it, right? Mm. And and so we aim to be good partners with our customers, yeah. right? We're here to help. That's what we're here to do. Yeah. I think I just wanted to point that out. This isn't like a, a cloud solution where you just myst- mystically instantiate something. I think there is... <laughs> You are doing hard work here, heavy, hot, hard work. And so you are taking flow records out of the network. You're starting to gather metadata from a range of different sources and you have to correlate them together and then you have to store them and then you have to analyze them to give you the network analytics. And then you also have to have the threat management capability to able to find security alerts and determine if a threat has been detected, right? So this is a whole spectrum of solution. This is... um, 
this isn't just a, a, an app that you run on your desktop. This is a, a full portfolio. Yeah. And it is. And part of what I wanted to say about that was that Viavi has been doing this for 20 or 30 years. You've got a whole portfolio of products assembled from a range of things that have been running for decades. This isn't a startup. You are oh, yeah. a mature, stable big business. <laughs> yeah, it comes from, you know, the no old uh, network instruments days, right? Where you mm. used to right. throw a gigastore into your data center. And, you know, we still have the gigastores. They've been greatly updated since then, obviously, and able to do all the net ops stuff that we've always done. But with this idea of enriched flow, we really feel like we've, we've, we're, we're, we're helping people, we're helping our customers go to that next level of threat, security, uh, network management. Mm -hmm. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Warren, thank you for being here. If folks want to find out more, where would you send them? Well, the first place you go to is www.beobviousolutions.com slash packet pushers. And to get more information about the products, you can go to our microsite, which is www.theobviousolutions.com slash PTV. Fantastic. And thanks That's for having me. I really love being here. Absolutely. You're welcome. Thank you for being with us. And thank you to Viavi for being a sponsor. That's viavisolutions.com slash PTV or viavisolutions.com slash packet pushers. Speaking of packet pushers, you can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. Follow us on Twitter at packet pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook and rate us on Apple podcasts. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>